Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August the 25th, 2014. This is episode 1412 of the Survival Podcast. You know what today is? For a lot of kiddos that live in the South, today is back to school day, where you return to the statist indoctrination, I mean, um, public school system, and uh, continue your indoctrination, I mean, education. We'll be talking about that a little bit today. For those of you in the uh, northern part of the country, mostly, um, I think is where this divide is, you have a reprieve of your indoctrination, I mean, education uh, cycle will not begin for about another week. Generally, uh, up north, kids go back to school around the uh, first week of September after Memorial Day. So uh, some of you guys, I guess that's, uh, what day is that this year? Is it the first? I guess it is the first this year. Did I say Memorial Day? It's Labor Day. Labor Day. So Labor Day is the uh, first. So I guess most kids in the northern part of our nation will resume their indoctrination, I mean education, on the 2nd of September this year. Anyway, I always found that a little backwards. Uh, they say it's because of the heat, and they want to let the kids down south out earlier, but I don't know about all of you, but for me, wherever I've lived in the lower 48, this is the hottest time of year. Anyway, it's Monday, 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 so it's not just back to school day, it's back to slavery, I mean back to work day, right, for, for most people. So uh, we have something in common with kids and adults today with it being a Monday. And it also is a listener feedback show. This is where you send me your feedback to jack at the survival of podcast dot com. And in the subject line, you put question for Jack, comment for Jack, story for Jack, video for Jack's, you know, article for Jack, whatever. One word followed by the words for Jack, and you're more likely to get... Um, filtered out and, uh, and, 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 and put on the air if you follow that protocol. With that, let's, uh, let's take care of our sponsors before we get into your feedback for today's show. Sponsor of the day number one today, Sawtooth Tactical. All the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle, you'll find it at sawtac.com. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, nestled in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho, and they've got it all. Maxpedition bags, SOE tactical gear, uh, the awesome manly titanium spork, Magpul magazines, and you name it, they've got it. Check them out today, sawtac.com. Next up today, survival gear bags, the bags and the gear to put in the bags. That's that's what they've got there. They've got the bags and the gear in one place for you, all ready to go and build out those bug-out bags, those get-home bags, and your multi-purpose kits. You'll find it at survivalgearbags.com, run by the awesome, amazing Kelly John Doe, who built this company right out of the Survival Podcast community. Check it out today at survivalgearbags.com. Next, I want to remind you guys, maybe we got a big AgriTrue contest going. Have you joined yet? What's AgriTrue? AgriTrue is designed to be an alternative to USDA Organic. 
where we know we have good, high-quality, locally grown food available from producers all over the country where you can find people close to you. But, hey, AgriTrue is an infant right now. We need your help to tell people about it. Check out the uh, show notes today. You'll see a link that says the Great Big AgriTrue Contest. We're giving away a ton of stuff, guys. Check it out. Please tell others about AgriTrue. Follow the contest guidelines, and you will continue to earn chances. And it's some really cool stuff in the AgriTrue contest. Uh, next up, I want to remind you guys about the Members Support Brigade. That's where you can help support what we do here at the Survival Podcast for 50 bucks a year or $5 a month. Just check it out. Go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members. If you buy stuff from guns to gardening and everything in between for your self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and independence, your membership will more than pay for itself. I've lined up a tremendous number of actual real-world discounts. They're real discounts. They're not fake like AAA does, uh, where you go to the hotel and you say, well, what do I, what's the rate with the AAA? And they're like, oh, I already gave you a better rate. These are real discounts on real stuff that you're really buying. Check it out today, thesurvivalpodcast.com, and click on Members Military. Law Enforcement Peace Corps, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. You guys qualify for a discount on that membership. Just email me before you join. Put a service discount in the subject line. Send it to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. If you don't hear back from me within a day or two, please email me again. The spam monster might have ate it or something like that. All right, with that, let's get into uh, the main part of today's show. But this is Monday, so we got all kinds of cool stuff to do before we get to your questions. First... We have to have a, a segment that we don't have often, but when we do, I try to put it up front so you know the truth. Today, this segment is Jack was wrong. Yes, friends, I was wrong. I answered a question on Friday about propagation of butternut and chestnuts uh, from seed, and I stated, because I believe this to be true, that you could not uh, cause a, an infection of butternut, um, what's it called again? Butternut, butternut canker. Canker be gone. Uh, <laughs> in a weird mood again. Uh, no, butternut canker would not be spread by seed, that the tree wouldn't become infected after germination. And someone sent me a white paper from Europe where they're concerned about this because butternut, and, along with other uh, walnut, pecan, hickory species, are grown as timber crops there. Um, it basically said, yes, you can. Uh, I have not been able to corroborate that with any other source that says you can spread butternut canker at the seed level, but this white paper appeared to be pretty conclusive and pretty credible, so I am going to post a correction right here that says if you're going to propagate butternut from seed, that for all the other reasons I said, plus this one, it's important to find seed from canker-free trees and known canker-free trees because apparently this very insidious disease can be transmitted at the seed level, which makes it quite dangerous uh, to the, the butternut stands in, in North America today. And it's a good reason to plant a few from known healthy trees uh, if you have some land and some room for such big, long-term, overstory timber and nut-producing trees. Um We need to take the exact opposite approach that we took with chestnut when it comes to butternut with this uh, with this uh, canker. And instead of trying to destroy all the butternuts to save the butternuts, which makes about as much sense as killing a bunch of people so they don't starve to death, um, then uh, then we need to to propagate and plant and grow these things uh, at at a very uh, high high level. Uh, moving on, let's talk about the year that was the episode fourteen twelve. Tough one today picking out what to tell you about. 
The three segments I have are Penn and Teller, A Matter of Perspective, China, Gunpowder and the Fire Dragon Manual, and The 100 Years' War, Joan of Arc is Born. Well, that one's interesting. I'm just going to tell you, that's what happened in 1412. Joan of Arc was born. I'm sure we'll talk about her more in the future. Uh, but she was born in the province of Champagne, France. And I'll tell you a little bit on this. The, the, the bubbles in the Champagne wine were considered a problem at the time. The problem is the solution. Now it is the finest sparkling wine in the world. Anyway, I'm going to go with China Gunpowder and the Fire Dragon Manual and read that segment to you. Of course, we're doing 1412 because the episode's 1412. So we take a quick look at history, what happened that year. The Fire Dragon Manual outlines the use of gunpowder in Chinese, quote, fire weapons, end quote. The main text was compiled by Zhao Yu and Liu Ji. Earlier forms of the manual exist, but it is in its full form published this year. It describes various explosive devices, flamethrowers, and rockets that ranged in lethality from simply being frightening to, injur to injurious to deadly. The earliest forms of the metal-barreled gunner describe what passes for a grenade is actually a cast-iron tub filled with gunpowder and flung by a trebuchet. That sounds like it would work. Um, here's my take by Alex Shrug that puts these, for us to get, puts these together for us at tspwiki.com. Mythbusters asked the question, could the ancient Korean Hwacha fire arrow actually fire 200 arrows at once? at a range of 500 yards and explode on impact? The answer was yes. Oh, heck yes. They missed the 50 styrofoam soldiers, but the grouping was so good, if you can get the aim right, this weapon could be devastating. I saw that episode of Mythbusters. It was like one of those episodes of Mythbusters. You're like, this is really cool. This is why I watch this show. Um, it did miss the, uh, the, the little fake army troops they put there, but they put 50 in an area that for battle tactics at the time, would have probably held like a couple hundred. So it would have been quite effective on a real troop formation. They were not lined up rank and file like the fighting of the day. The reason I chose this one to read for you, though, is I just, I think we have a, a, a very short memory and a very microwave mindset in America today that we think of guns and, and explosives and modern weaponry in the concept of being able to launch something hundreds of yards and blow something up is being a very modern thing, 100, 150, 200 years old. Um, here you're going back to 1412, and it's prevalent enough. There's an entire manual built for a military on just the use of gunpowder and fire weapons. It also, I thought, would be a good thing to read because remember what the Chinese are doing right now. They've had the smackdown laid on them by the plague and the Mongols, and they are beginning to plan for the future. They've planted millions of trees. They're rebuilding canal systems, and they're laying the smackdown on other people, including remnants of the Mongols. China is rising in the year 1412. This is just one part of that. Uh, next up, it is Monday, and that means it's time for Conflicted Monday where I'm going to make you conflicted by giving you a scenario from Conflicted, the card game. Survival card game you can get a discount on from the Member Support Brigade, by the way. And the way it works in real life is everybody draws a card one at a time, and then when you get your card, you read your card, you give your answer to the card, everybody in your group playing the game says what they think, you give your final answer, and then everybody grades you from zero to three, and you do as many rounds as you want, whoever has the most points wins. Cool game. Can't do that on the air, so what we do on the air 
is I just read you one and you tell me in the comments what you would do. And then next week, I give you last week's scenario and tell you what I would have done. Of course, I get to read all your responses and cheat. It's part of the benefit of being the host here. Today's conflicted Monday scenario, and this one was written long, so I've abbreviated it. I'll give you a disclaimer on that from the, what the card says, but I think it'll make the point. The economic collapse has happened, and people are scavenging and starving. You are prepared and reasonably stocked. How do you keep your supplies safe while you consume them and avoid becoming a target? So your neighbors are starting to strip bark off trees. They're eating the rats and the cats. And uh, you've got a pretty good stockpile. For whatever reason, you, you, you're sitting right where you're at. You didn't bug out. You're there. You've made your stand there. How do you continue to make your stand there? And uh, if that's the case, and uh, survive without having everything you've stored for the apocalypse taken away. And remember, though we talk more practical here than we do, you know, far out for this game, you are to assume dogs and cats are having puppy kittens, zombies are raining from the sky. It is the end of the world as we know it. It is the apocalypse. Ah, that is the mindset you're to be in. Last week's scenario was your family has been without food for quite some time now and things are becoming beginning to look bleak. You find people willing to trade some food. The only thing you have is your they will take is your last firearm. How would you react in this scenario? What would you do? Um, this kind of comes down to can you eat a gun? If you're in this scenario, things have gone very, very wrong. If these people have stuff and you have nothing, even with one firearm, you're not probably going to take anything from them. So turning the tables on them and stealing from them is probably a good way to end up dead and hung from a tree or something like that. So you're not going to do that. So you either have to walk away and say your weapon's more important to you, or you have to trade your weapon for food. If you've been without food for quite some time at this point, you're probably trading your gun for as much food as you can get because it buys you time to try to figure out what to do next. Um, the truth is, if things are this bad in this type of a scenario and you're faced with this choice, you're probably dead in a few weeks at best. That doesn't mean you don't keep trying to survive, but if you are that bad off that that's where you're at with this decision, You've probably already killed yourself. You just haven't, you know, seen the end result yet. All right. With that, let's get into uh, the main part, the real main part of today's show, where we take your questions and feedback. And uh, the first one today was a pretty simple question, and it was on squash and pumpkins. It says, "What is the?" This is from Adam. Adam says, "What is the best and quickest method of removing seeds?" From the guts of squash, if you wish to use the seeds, you know, roasting or seed saving, etc. There ain't nothing to it. Cut it open, separate it by hand, um, spread your seeds out on a tray or a, a paper towel or something like that and let them dry. And uh, if you're going to roast them for eating, you can pretty much, as soon as you separate them out, um, salt them with a little bit of salt and the stickiness and gooiness on them will make the salt stick and they roast up really nice that way but if you're saving them for seed saving um, you, there's really no way around just like a manual uh, stripping of the seeds uh, if you're doing it for seed saving I mean you're only going to save so much squash or pumpkin seed one butternut or one pumpkin has enough seed to, to plant rows and rows and rows of plants 
I personally just don't know any way around it or speeding it up. You can probably put them in a colander and rinse water through. That might help a little bit. But what I've found with pumpkins and squash is that you just take your big clump of goo and, and hold it in your left hand and take your right hand and kind of rake it out and rake your seeds out. And don't try to get every flipping speck of the, the goop, the squash guts or pumpkin guts off of them, and then spread them out when they dry, and, and you know, it just kind of shrivels up to almost nothing. And it's okay if a little bit of that's on there. The, uh, the good news is there's no reason to do it quickly other than if you want them, if you want the job done quickly. If you have a good storing squash like acorn and butternut and, or good storing pumpkin like a long neck pumpkin, uh, if you leave that thing sit for four or five weeks, to several months and it's still good and you finally use it it's a good storing when you take those seeds out they're just as viable as they've ever been i have seen when squashes or pumpkins are stored for a very long time to the edge of where uh their their viability begins to decline where they get start to get a little bit soft you're like i gotta either eat this or, or, or feed it to the chickens sometimes when you cut it open then the seeds are actually starting to sprout inside um, and if you've saved them through to a good, you know, fat past the frost period in the spring, those would be great seeds to plant because they're off to a hell of a start. Let's take another one. Um, next up, I keep talking about how the educational system will transform uh, all the way from K through, you know, doctorate level courses. This is really about college. It's a article from the Atlantic. I'm only going to read part of it because it's like a huge article. You can read the rest, but it'll it'll be enough to give you an idea of one of the ways education's changing. And in a way that's almost, well, this is eerie. This is George Orwellian yet by choice and probably very effective. Now I'll save my thoughts on all of that for a little bit later. On a Friday morning in April, I strapped on a headset and hold on. I did not do do justice here. Charlie sent me this article. Again, from the Atlantic, back to the article. On a Friday morning in April, I strapped on a headset, leaned into a microphone, and experienced what had been described to me as a type of time travel to the future of higher education. I was on the ninth floor of a building in downtown San Francisco in a neighborhood whose streets were heavily populated with winos and vagrants, whose buildings boast hip new businesses, many of them tech startups, in a small room, I was flanked by a publicist and a tech manager from an educational venture called Minerva Project, whose founder and CEO, the 39-year-old entrepreneur Ben Nelson, aims to replace, or when he is feeling less aggressive, reform the modern liberal arts college. Minerva is an accredited university with administrative offices in a dorm in San Francisco. It plans to open locations in at least six other major world cities. But the key to Minerva, what sets it apart most jarringly from traditional universities, is a proprietary online platform developed to apply pediological practices that have been studied and vetted by one of the world's foremost psychologists, a former Harvard dean named Stephen M. Coslin, who joined Minerva in 2012. I'm going to pause right there. I'm glad this guy's involved with this. I bet his opinion's pretty valid, but... I am going to hold back a little bit of my opinion of his opinion because he works for the company he's vetted. All right, so you tend to give a better review of something when you have a stake in it. I'm just going to point that out there. All right, Nelson and Costlin have invited me to sit in and on a test run of the platform, and at first it reminded me of the opening credits to the Brady Bunch, a grid of images of the professor and eight students 
The others were all Minerva employees appeared on the screen before me, and we introduced ourselves. For a college seminar, it felt impersonal, as though we were all sitting on the, and, and though we were sitting on the same floor of Minerva's offices, my fellow students seemed oddly distant, as if piped in from the International Space Station. I half expected a packet of astronaut ice cream to float by someone's face. Within minutes, though, the experience got more intense. The subject of the class won in a series during which the instructor, a French physicist named Eric Bonabou, was trying out his course material, was inductive reasoning. Bonabou, Bonabou I'm going to say is how you pronounce this guy's name probably, Bonabou, uh, began polling us on our understanding of the reading, a Nature article about the sudden depletion of North Atlantic cod in the early 1990s. He asked us which of the four possible interpretations of the article was most accurate. In an un ordinary undergraduate seminar, that might have been an occasion for timid silence until the class' biggest loudmouth or most caffeinated student ventured to guess. But Minerva class extended no refuge for the timid nor privilege for the gargarious. Within seconds, every student had to provide an answer. And Bonobo displayed our choices so we could be called upon to defend them. Bonobo led the class like a benevolent dictator, subjecting us to pop quizzes, cold calls, and pediological tactics that during uh, an in-the-flesh seminar would have taken precious minutes from class time to arrange. He split us into groups to defend opposite positions, uh, that the con had disappeared because of overfishing or that other factors were to blame. No one needed to shuffle seats. Bonobo just pushed a button, and the students of the other group vanished from my screen, leaving my three fellow debaters and me to plan using a shared bulletin board on which we could record our ideas. Bonobo bounced between the two groups to offer advice as we worked. After a representative from each group gave a brief presentation, Bonobo ended by showing a short video about the evils of overfishing. Propaganda, he snorted, adding that we'd talk about logical fallacies in the next session. The computer screen blinked off after 45 minutes. The system had bugs, it crashed once, and some of the video lagged, but overall it worked well and felt decidedly unlike a normal classroom. For one thing, it was exhausting. A continuous period of forced engagement with no relief in the form of time when my attention could flag or I could doodle in a notebook undetected. Instead, my focus was directed relentlessly by the platform, and because it looked like my professional... My professor and fellow edgenauts were staring at me. I was reluctant to even let my gaze stray from the screen. Even in moments when I wanted to think about aspects of the material that weren't currently under discussion, to me, they seemed like moments of creative space, but perhaps they were just daydreams. I felt my attention snap back to the narrow issue at hand because I had to, I had to answer quiz questions and articulate a position. I was forced, in effect, to learn. It was the education of the future. It seemed vaguely fascist, good, but fascist. And the article goes on for a long time after that. Um, my thoughts on this, when I was reading that, before I got to the end where he said fascist, I was like, wow, if you wanted to program people to believe statist bullshit, what a great system. So while this system currently exists to compete with public education, I can see every statist on the on planet Earth going, woohoo, we got a new way to program them. It seems a little bit, this seems like a gun. It, it is all about who is holding it in choosing to do good or evil with it. I mean, with that type of an educational regimen, and it's probably something you could get a person to do well with at about 9 to 10. I think much younger than that, if there ain't a purple dinosaur on the screen, forget it. Um, but certainly by high school, middle school, high school, this would be actually a very effective way to learn. 
And I can see this being adopted by the, uh, the indoctrination centers uh, as part of their new paradigm. I think it's good and bad. Again, I think it's like a gun. I, I have guns. I think guns are great. But there are people who, if they have a gun, will like you know use it to steal, rob, murder, or you know with the auspices of uh, of credentials, use it to like extort money from you legally in the form of taxation and things like that, or you know put people in prison for possessing a plant, stuff like that, right? So guns can be abused both legitimately and illegitimately by many people in society, yet they are one of the greatest things in the world to help preserve individual liberty and freedom, and they are a great tool for things like self-sufficiency, being able to feed yourself. So that's how I see this. Like, this could be used for good or evil. I think the good news is that it's an option, and that means that the entire system is becoming full of more and more options. I actually think this is a very good way to learn some things. I would not... If I had decided, if I were to be 18 again and say, yes, I want a higher education, and this was an option, I would not want to go to a college where all the teachings this way. But I do think for someone like me with, I guess what you would call attention deficit disorder, I call it being interested in some shit I like and not in other shit I don't like, um, if there was something I really felt I needed to learn and I had a hard time focusing on it, I would want to take this kind of class for that thing. I think that it would be very useful for that. I think it would be very useful for learning basically the ability to defend a position and to think critically. I think there's a lot of people in our society that could benefit from this type of a, of a, of a class. And I don't think it even matters what the class is on. I think if you can get the average person to take four or five of these classes, like Not the whole class, like these individual sessions and just on critical thinking, it could be very useful. I think what Jeffrey Tucker's doing with his online classrooms at liberty.me, Liberty Me, might be very useful in that regard to take some things and eventually do things this way. Um, what I like best was the fact that the student would be held accountable for learning now, not later. And I think that's one of the biggest flaws in our education system. Like, I'm going to say all this shit, I'm going to test you on it next week, which means to you, well, I have till next week to study this crap, and I don't really need to pay attention to you. And, well, most teachers aren't very good anyway. I'm sorry. I know you're all pissed off at me now, but most teachers are not good teachers. They're not. If your kids, I'm sorry, teachers, this is a, this is a fact. If your te kids are bored as shit while you teach, you're not doing a good job. Well, the material's not that interesting. It's your job to make it interesting. I've had teachers that were amazingly interesting about subjects that I thought were monotonously boring. So you can do it. So this type of a system allows, and in the article it talks about how one of the ways they can attract staff is a teacher can say, I want to live in Costa Rica on a coffee plantation and, and teach from my little hut. Fine. If you got internet access, you're good. That's, man. And if you start thinking about a good teacher in a system like this, should be paid based on how many people take their class and put money into the coffers. And that means the best teachers have the longest waiting list for the most students and can charge the most money. So we have a free market education. What a blast. Uh, again, though, this bugs me. I'd like to hear from you guys in the comments. Does this type of thing bug you? Not that in of itself it's bad, but how abusive a system of programming like this could become. I mean, you could, with careful planning, completely 
change the way a person thinks to the way you want them to think in an, an environment of trust like education. I, I don't think many people understand why many of us in the liberty movement have such a poor view of education uh, as it's conducted in America. It's because it is the perfect brainwashing platform. It is the perfect indoctrination platform because it has an inherency of trust in it. So I think many teachers that are doing a great job indoctrinating our children, notice I did say indoctrinating, not educating, don't know that's what they're doing. They've been indoctrinated. Think about how one becomes a teacher of something like the fourth grade. One goes to school and is indoctrinated for 13 years, kindergarten through 12. They get done with that, and they go to at least four more years of indoctrination, where they are told this experience, this additional four years of higher education, has qualified you to go back and teach fourth grade, which you've graduated 16 years ago. That technically, except for the maturity aspects, it's a basic understanding of formulaic classroom teaching and, and management of a classroom, you should have been qualified to teach like when you graduated fifth grade. And so this, the teachers are indoctrinating because they've been indoctrinated. They believe everything that they're doing is for good because they've been taught their whole lives that it's for good. And they're teaching children to parrot the dictates of the state. And when I think about that, and then I think about what if the state, instead of fighting this type of thing, adopted it? It feels like... He says fascist. We got fascism in our schools right now. Our entire economic system is the very definition of fascism. This isn't fascist. This is Orwellian. If used improperly. I think as long as you have a free market where people can choose this for some things and something else for others, it could be a wonderful tool. But adopted by the institutions, man, This could become the ultimate tool of mental programming and indoctrination. It really could. So what I'm saying is it's a very effective method. So it's effective at teaching whatever the platform is designed to teach. Whatever, whatever subject matter and interpretation and view is on it. But if you could teach critical thinking with it, it's its own worst enemy. Right? If, if you have, see, this is actually seems to me like the perfect tool to teach the, 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 the trivium, grammar, rhetoric, and logic. And if we start by teaching people that, then they become unprogrammable. You can't program someone that understands grammar, rhetoric, and logic. Because if they do, then they're going to question whatever you say. They're going to defend their position from a point of knowledge. And even if you've gotten them to put down A or B, or 37, or whatever for an answer so that they can pass your class, they're still going to go if it bothers them and research that. So, uh, folks, I also want to tell you right now, I've made a decision. Uh, usually, I get 20 or 30 articles a week about some stupid shit the school system's doing, and I cover like one out of 30, if that, because I get so angry about how screwed up our education system is, and I go on my jack rants and all. I've made a new decision. I'm going to start telling you about a lot more of them, and I'm going to do it a lot shorter. School A did something stupid. Here's what it was. Guess what, folks? That's another reason to find an alternative for your kids to the conventional public education. Let's move on. And just I'm going to hit you over the head with them until you get tired of it. And, and maybe at some point, more and more people will begin to wake up 
and realize reform is not what we need. Replacement is what we need. Let's uh, take another one. On that note, though, I'm going to tell you that the problem we have with public education isn't a public education problem. It's a, it's a cultural problem. It's a adult problem, adults that can't use their brains. It is a societal problem. It is that our public institutions are giving us exactly what we've asked for, uh, which is a nanny state. And the average person believes that nannyism is actually the best form of government and that it should exist at all levels right down to your own individual household. Don't believe me? Well, Brian sent me this article from Reason.com, which, uh, oh, man, you want to talk about creating teacup kids and a society where parents don't have any rights anymore. How about this? Poll, most Americans want to criminalize preteens from playing unsupervised. Think about this. Um, there's also um, a quote here at the beginning. I doubt there's ever been a human culture anywhere, anytime that underestimates children's abilities more than we North Americans do today. Lenore Skazinski. Um, this is almost hard to read. You realize that the average person is this stupid. A whopping 68% of Americans think there should be a law that prohibits kids 9 and under from playing at the park unsupervised, despite the fact that most of them, no, no doubt, grew up doing just that. What's more, 43% feel the same way about 12-year-olds. They would like to criminalize all pre-teenagers playing outside on their own and, I guess, arrest their no-good parents. Those are the results of a reason root poll confirming that we have not only lost all confidence in our kids and our communities, We have lost all touch with reality. Quote, I doubt there has ever been a human culture anywhere, anytime that underestimates children's abilities more than we do in North America today. Says Boston College psychology professor emeritus Peter Gray, author of Free to Learn, a book that advocates for more unsupervised play, not less. In his book, Gray writes about a group of 13 kids who played several hours a day for four months without supervision. Though they were observed uh, by an anthropologist, Quote, they organized activities, settled dispute, avoided danger, dealt with injuries, distributed goods without adult intervention, he writes. The kids ranged in age from three to five. Of course, those kids were allowed to play in the South Pacific, not South Carolina, where Deborah Harrell was thrown in jail for having the audacity to believe her nine-year-old would be fine by herself at a popular playground teeming with activity. In another era, it not only would have been normal for a child to say goodbye, Mom, and go off to spend a summer's day there, it would have been odd to consider the child unsupervised. After all, she was surrounded by other kids, parents, and park personnel. Apparently now only a private security detail is considered safe enough. You can read the rest if you want to. I can't because I want to puke. I want to puke. This is why your school system's screwed. Because parents are stupid. Because people are stupid. My God, when I was 9, 10 years old, I went out the door and I was gone. I came home for dinner. That was it. There was no it was the supervision. You're surrounded by other people. I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, pulling up to like a freaking amusement. Well, I wouldn't even think that's a big deal, honestly. Dropping your kid off in the middle of a dark forest and saying, see you next week, that would be a problem. A kid playing at a playground by themselves? Oh, the horrors. I want to hear from you guys today. Who remembers playing with other kids, unsupervised, under 10 years of age? Me, 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 and me. Right? 
Come on. This is stupid. We've lost our minds. This is why every once in a while, as much as I love the ideal that is America and the beauty that is this nation, I look around and go, why the hell are we still here? Why am I giving this government half of my income when they're giving me nothing of what I want? Why am I in a place where a person can be thrown in jail because they let their kid play in a park? Why do I live in a, a country where police can come and arrest a woman because her kid skipped school and she didn't pay a fine? Throw her in jail, take away her medication, and a day later she's dead, and no one loses their job over her. Why do I live in a country like this? Number one, USA, USA, my ass. We're number one in what? Incarceration, military spending, and obesity. That's what we're number one in. Every metric of any meaningful thing continues to follow in America while we continue to wave our foam fingers. Didn't know I was going to talk about this today, especially regarding to this story, but I, I have a special message for some of you guys out there. And most of it's not you, but you'll know someone like this. Waving your flag and saying, America, and saying, I support the troops, does not make you a patriot. It doesn't make you a patriot. The average American today that says they support the troops and they thank the troops and they stand for the troops, they're watching a war like it's a freaking baseball game. Our side's really good. We always win. <laughs> you know what? It makes me sick when I think about it. It makes me absolutely revolted sick how many Americans say they support our troops and don't even know what they're doing and would never make the sacrifices those guys made. And don't understand, their quote-unquote support of our troops is support of a government that sends them into harm's way. Their support, in many instances, is the very mechanism by which those men are forced into battle and sometimes for no good result. It makes me sick when I think about the foam finger-waving bullshit that passes for patriotism today. I guess the reason, coming back to answer my own question of why am I still here, is because, damn it, this is my home, and I will fight the idiots, I will fight the morons, I will fight the ass clowns, I will fight the status at every level. Because it's worth doing. I guess that's the answer to my question. Let's take another one. I do have a really interesting segment I'm about to go into, but as I do that, I just thought of something that I thought of this morning and kind of tying back into this legit litigious society that we have today and a society that's lost its minds. I was listening to the Permaculture Voices um, podcast with uh, Diego, and he had Larry Santoyo on. Uh, he was a very well-known permaculturist in Southern California. And he was talking about all the things you could do to build intentional communities in a uh, distributed manner at a neighborhood level and things like that. And I really was digging it. And he started talking about legalities. And he was talking about how this, you know, there's these new laws that allow you to now do this. And L.A. being one of the first cities where they made it legal to do things like they put in a law that, that protected the ability of people to do things like make canned goods in their home kitchen up to a certain amount and sell those. And... I had an interesting thought at that point that I'd like to share with you today. 
We now live in a society where we have to pass laws to be able to do things. This is where you know your society's gotten out of control. So, generally speaking, you the, the, the motivation to pass the law is to prevent some, something from being done. When you've gotten to the point where you've pretty much outlawed everything, then legislators have to employ themselves with something new, which is beginning to pass laws to allow things to be done. When we got to the point, and I'm not sure when it was, where it became more necessary to pass laws in order to decriminalize or legalize behavior, we had passed the point of no return of a totalitarian society. It is ridiculous that you need to pass a law so that someone can do something today. And the reason is they will not repeal the law that prevents it. They want to they, they pass a new law that, that creates a window for a certain number of people under certain circumstances to not have that law to apply to them as long as we say so. But that's your thought of the day. I want you to think about that. I want you to meditate on that. You guys that blog, I want you to blog about it. You guys that podcast, I want you to podcast about this. I want you to share this thought with the people around you. I want your feedback in today's show notes. I want your comments on this. Think about this. We live in a society where we now must pass a law to create a liberty versus pass a law to infringe upon a liberty. How much infringement on liberty must have occurred for us now to be in that state? All right, now, something totally unrelated. Uh, I've given you my thoughts on the Ebola scare. It could come here and kill us all. Shut up. Shut up. Please shut up. We're not. It's not coming here to kill us all. It's killed a couple thousand people, if that, in Africa, uh, where there's millions of people and they have deplorable conditions and all. But there is a lesson that no one's really talking about. Apparently, someone over at the Huffington Post pulled their head out of their ass long enough to talk about it. And this is a big lesson for us in the threat of pandemic and what it means. How about this? Ebola may leave one million people in need of food help. Ooh. Think about that. Let me read to you. Konkari, Guinea, AP. The deadly Ebola virus has killed more than 1,000 in West Africa, is disrupting the flow of goods, forcing the United Nations to plant food convoys up to a million people as hunger threatens a largely impoverished area. Amid roadblocks manned by troops and pervasive fear among the population of the dreaded disease, the worst ever outbreak of Ebola is increasingly impacting the food supply in three countries. The impacts are evident in Guinea's capital of Konskari, uh, where fruit and vegetables no longer arrive from the country's breadbasket. In Sierra Leone and Liberia, several markets have been shut down. The price of rice and other staples is soaring in areas under Ebola quarantine. Hunters of bushmeat, which can carry the Ebola virus, have lost their livelihoods, and farmers in some areas have been cut off from their fields. Price gouging hurts people who struggle to feed themselves in the best of time, observers say. While none of the regulations restrict the movement of basic necessities, fear and inconvenience are disrupting supplies. Some one million people in isolated areas might need food assistance in the coming months, according to the UN. World Food Program, which is preparing a rational emergency operation to bring food to convoy uh, to the needy. Three months of operations can be extended. Okay, so basically I can read the rest of this long article, but the overall message here is in the parts of Africa that are hard hit with this thing, even though it's only infected a few thousand people and killed about a thousand, there's like a million starving 
because of the disruption in the nation because of it. You might think, well, that's the lesson. It's only the beginning. It's only the beginning. Um, in nations like Africa, this came from Bob, by the way, who I'm going to tell you what I said when I, uh, when I got that first email from him with just this, uh, this part of it. I said, now you've got something about Ebola worth discussing. Well done, thanks. We'll be on Monday's show. Well, he sent an email back to me with the link to this article at bbc.com on the economic impact. Let me read this to you. With more than 1,300 reported deaths from Ebola in West Africa, the virus continues to be an urgent health crisis, but it's also having a devastating impact on the economies of Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone. The economy has been deflated by 30% because of Ebola, Sierra Leone's agricultural minister, Joseph Sam Searcy, told the BBC. He said that Pre President Ernest Baikoma re revealed the staggering and depressing news to ministers in a special cabinet meeting. The agricultural sector, sector is the most impacted in terms of Ebola because the majority of the people of Sierra Leone, almost 66% are farmers, he said. 12 out of 13 districts in Sierra Leone are now affected by Ebola, although the epicenters are the eastern province near the borders with Liberia and Guinea. Roadblocks are manned by police and military, preventing the movement of farmers and laborers as well as supply of goods. We are definitely expecting a devastating effect not only on our labor availability and capacity, but we are also talking about farms being abandoned by people running away from the epicenters and going to areas that don't have the disease, Mr. Searcy said. Um, so there's a huge economic impact. It's hitting tourism, obviously, uh, which, believe it or not, is a significant industry there. Uh, mining is being hit. Um, there's just a tremendous deflation, uh, not of the monetary supply, deflation of the economic output, the GDP. I want you to think about this. The Great Recession of 2008-2009, and some would say ongoing till today, resulted from a decline in our economy of about 1-2%. to I'm going to say that again. Our GDP went down by 1-2%. to And look what happened. Look what happened. These nations are seeing their economy decline by 30%. It's almost a third. When you look at this, again, I want you to think about this. So uh, let's say, let's say that this thing was worse than it is. Let's say this thing had infected 20,000 people and killed 10,000 people. It is still at that level. A mouse fart compared to the population of the area that's affected. Right? It's not a good thing. I'm not, I'm not downplaying it to the extreme. I'm just trying to get you to put this in perspective. Sierra Leone, I think, has like, oh, I don't know, 12 million people or something like that. Guinea has like 12.5 million. Liberia has like almost 5 million people or a little over 5 million and some change. The number of people killed by this is very, very low. The number of people infected by this compared to the population is very, very low. So now, we've done a lot with history. We talked a lot about the Black Death and the similar impacts in history from the Black Death. Now you're talking about a disease that kills entire cities, that runs through a town, and a dozen people or so are left alive. What would that have been like? Does it start to 
ring true for you how bad it must have been back then? Is it no longer just a flat history lesson? Is it now something you can get your hands around a little bit and start to realize if 50% of the people were dead around you tomorrow, what would your economy look like? What would your society look like? How would you rebuild it when many of the people that knew how to do things are dead? So the lesson of Ebola is here. It's in the economic and agricultural impact of this disease on these nations in West Africa. When people hear about a disease, they tend to always worry, well, will the disease kill me? What if it didn't kill you? What if the death rate was really low from this disease? What if this was a disease that killed like 3, 4, 5%? but had a huge infection rate, high transmission rate. And what if we got hit with a flu like that? A flu that killed 5% of the people who got it um, and was easily trans transmittable and totally incarcerated the shit out of people, put people in a state of fear, what would be the economic impact? What would be the impact on the flow of goods and services? You see why we store food? Even if we're not reading for the apocalypse... How long does it take something like that to basically wind down to a point where they feel like they have it under control and it's gone through its cyclical nature? Diseases usually have a time of the year they peak and then they ebb off and then they drop and then they come back and then they drop again. That's the typical pattern that we've seen with diseases. They make, then they take a break for a year or two and come back and do it again. Just one more reason to be prepared, guys. It's not Ebola that I fear. It's any disease that causes this type of disruption to our society. I think when I come out so pragmatic about Ebola, people think, well, this is a survival guy. Doesn't he get how dangerous diseases can be? Of course I do. I'm just telling you, it's probably not this one in our country. It just doesn't function that way. But it's sure an indicator of what can happen sooner or later when something does hit us. It is only a matter of time. It is only a matter of when, not if, we have to deal with a serious, dangerous, disruptive pandemic in our, in our nation. And in many instances, the only way to be safe is to simply not be exposed. To take an isolationist attitude, a quarantine attitude, And to be self-sufficient until the, the, the peak of the danger at least has passed. Are you prepared for it? This is my question of the day for you. Let's take another one. Remember my disclaimer about the education system and stupidity in the public school systems? Uh, here's me keeping my word. Teen arrested and suspended for shooting a dinosaur. In a story he wrote. Yep. Let me read this to you. This is on uh, Reason.com on the Hit and Run blog there. Now that summer is over and school is starting up again, it's time for a torrent of ridiculous zero-tolerance suspensions and arrests to resume. Somerville High, school student, uh, Somerville High School in Somerville, South Carolina, is wasting no time. A 16-year-old student was arrested and suspended for writing a story in which he used a gun to kill a dinosaur. The student, Alex Stone, was assigned by a teacher to write a story about himself. Stone chose to embellish his story with obvious fictional details, like dinosaurs. But the teacher saw the word gun and the rest is history, according to NBC12. Stone said in his status he wrote a fictional story that involved the word gun and take care of business. 
I killed my neighbor's pet dinosaur, and then the next status, I brought the gun to take care of business, Stone said. Stone said his statements were completely taken out of context. I could understand if they made him rewrite it because he did have gun in it. Really? But a pet dinosaur, said Alex's mother, Karen Gray. I mean, first of all, we don't have dinosaurs anymore. Second of all, he's not even old enough to buy a gun. Investigators say the teacher contacted school officials after seeing the message containing the words, Gun! Take care of business! Police were notified on Tuesday. The police arrested Stone and charged him with disorderly conduct. He was also suspended from school. Okay, the police are idiots. Idiots. Idiots and morons. And the police chief of that jurisdiction should be fired immediately. Immediately, immediately. And parents, one more reason not to send your children to public school. Let's move on. Here's an interesting one from Flippy Did It. Uh, it's also known as Nathan from Florida. Uh, and founder of Permascapes.com, which is a really cool company. It's Permascapes, P-E-R-M-E-S-C-A-P-E-S.com. Check out his site. Anyway, this is Nate in Florida. I'm a lifetime MSB member, and Flippy Did It on the forum. Since we now have crowdfunding like Kickstarter, Indiegogo, Tristway, etc., what legitimate argument remains for mandatory taxation? So the public want to fund a works project, we have a functional ability for it to be, receive meritorious funding. With cryptocurrency, audit capability, Bitcoin, Litecoin at all, all public funds could be vigorously tracked and accounted for. Many are not able to see how we get from here to libertarianism, minimalism, or anarchy. Do you see this as a viable means to a more limited government? I'd appreciate, appreciate hearing your thoughts on this, Nate. Um, I do think if all public spending had to be done in a blockchain-like environment that was auditable by anybody, and we could see exactly where every penny goes that our government had, it might, might, might lead to more accountability. You have to remember, though, for a society to be its own watchdog, it first has to use its damn brains, and we've already established that the people of this country are freaking stupid, and the majority of them think it should be a crime for your 10-year-old to play by themselves in a freaking park. So I don't think it works with the current freaking mindset of moronism that is pervasive in America today. Um... I think the problem is we keep looking for the system to be the problem when we, in fact, are the problem. I like the, I like the idea here. I like the thought, and this kind of lines up with my, my comments in an earlier show from like a couple weeks ago where I was talking about a book by Richard Bach. And it was either Stranger to the Ground, One, or Nothing by Chance. I don't, it was one of those three books. I don't remember which one, but in it he was, he was in the future talking about how one of the big problems with government had been solved, which is, you know, blowing people up for, for, for commercial purposes, basically. And uh, the way that that had been changed is that when you filed your tax return, you had to pay your taxes. But there was a whole list of government departments and what they did. And you assigned the percentage of your taxes to each department you wanted to get some. And you didn't have just evenly distribute as a single option. You had to actually think about it. So you had to go through and go, eh, Department of Commerce, I don't think they need that. Uh, DEA, don't think we need that. Uh, okay, this looks good. Yeah, okay. And you got to choose where your money went in government. Um, again, that's an interesting idea. But folks, understand where our problems lie. It's not our system itself. It's us. We're lazy. We're fat. We're arrogant. We're obnoxious. We don't give a shit. 
That's where, and I know you're saying, Jack, I, none of those things. I understand neither am I. The majority of us are. We, here's what happens. I'm going to tell you the, the story of the most beautiful discovery most of us ever find. And then the realization that it doesn't matter and the depression that ensues. It's called my journey to libertarianism. This is how most people discover libertarianism. Most people are not born libertarians, and they are not born to parents who are libertarians. Most libertarians are born to parents that are ardent conservative or liberal. They're either like the kind of people that have a little statue of George Bush they pray over, uh, or the people that do the same thing with one of Barack Obama or Bill Clinton or something like that. That's usually the parents of the libertarian. Or completely politically agnostic. Their parents are people that don't even give a shit. Somewhere along the way, these children think for themselves, and they, they examine the left-right paradigm, and they come down on one side or the other of it. They say, you know what, the fiscal conservative argument makes sense. I am a conservative Republican. You know what, the letting people live their own life without stepping on their faces, that makes more sense. I'm going to be a liberal Democrat. And along the way, they go, wait a minute, these assholes are doing the same shit with different marketing, and they become disillusioned, and they become a political agnostic. They say, I don't, just, I don't care about these people anymore. They, they, they will defend the position still, but in their hearts, they know they've been defeated. So then they hear about this thing called libertarian. Well, what is that? Maybe they discover somebody like Ron Paul, who is basically the only person that's ever lived the mantra of libertarianism as a congressman. And they go, wow. And they discover liber and they start to examine this philosophy of all the, the marketing fluff they like about the conservative message that the conservatives never deliver. Smaller government, less intrusion, lower taxes, more business-friendly environment, embracing the free market. And they go... That's good. And then they look at the libertarians and go, okay, but I bet you don't like gay people, and I bet you think we should put people in jail for smoking dope. And then they say, no, we don't. We don't think you should do that at all. We think everybody should live their own life, and until they hurt somebody else, you shouldn't have shit to say about it. And they go, holy crap, this is the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> I'm going to tell everybody about this libertarian stuff. It must be that people just don't know. This has got to be what the average person really thinks. This, If people knew this... We'd all be libertarians. So they go forth with Messiah complex and go, have you ever heard about libertarianism? Oh, those are those crazy people. No, they're not crazy. Listen. No, you look crazy to me. That's because I'm excited. No, no, you look crazy to me. Well, And then whatever side that person is on of the dichotomy, they'll hear everything the libertarian thinks about that, that matches what they want. Oh, that's good, that's good, that's good. And they hear, well, yeah, we, and we should legalize marijuana because we're wasting money and resources and hell, they can't keep drugs out of the prison, so they're not going to keep them out of our schools. We need to, you know, read... Oh, no, uh, you're going to have heroin in everybody's house. What? <laughs> and it, it's, and it's, it, you realize that they're, they're not receptive to the libertarian message. They're just not. We, you know, we really should stop bombing people. Are you anti-war? Well, yeah, that's horrible. What are you, pro-war? No, I'm not pro-war, but I'm not anti-war. What are you? I don't know, but I think when we when we need to bomb somebody, we should bomb them. And what happens to the person that finds libertarianism is they quickly realize that it's not that we don't have a third option. It's that most people are too cowardly to take it. Yep. Most people are too cowardly to take it. 
because it requires one to self-regulate. It requires that one self-govern. And most people don't want to. Do you understand that? Most people don't want to. Because here's what that means. Well, who's going to pay for my retirement? Well, that would be you. Oh, I don't like that. I mean, seriously, that's that's what it means. You're going to pay for your own retirement. We, we should get rid of Social Security, and you should fund your own retirement. What about an employer-funded account? Well, if your employer thinks you're valuable enough that you can put together an agreement with them for some type of a pension or whatever you want to call it, then that's private and that's totally fine. But I'm not going to provide it to you. Oh. What about Medicaid? No. No. Medicare? No. No. No, 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 no. We're going to stop taxing people for it. But then you have to take care of yourself. It's your body. It's your health. You take care of yourself. Well, what about insurance? If you want insurance, buy it. If you don't, don't buy it. No one gives a shit. And, and as soon as you start having conversations with people like that, they can't understand how we could ever function. And listen, a hundred years ago, we didn't have any of this. We had none of it. None. None. None of it existed. And this nation rose to prominence and greatness with none of this. So when you hear the message and you're receptive to it, when you become sufficiently disillusioned with the lies of both sides, when you were the Republican that always thought, yeah, these people's personal choices are not the ones I would make, but I don't want the government telling them what to do. But when you were the Democrat that was going, Yeah, I think we should, you know, help people, but I don't want the government making people do that. And, and God, these guys spend too much money. I, I mean, I gotta vote for the lesser of two evils and vote for my D, but my God, these, these guys are just terrible. And you were that person, and you, you're like, God, I just, I just want everybody to be left the hell alone. You, then you're ready. And you're probably five to ten percent of the population, and ninety percent of the population doesn't want freedom. They don't want freedom. They will pay homage to freedom. They have made freedom a god. That's what they've done. A, a god to exist apart from themselves. An ideal to pray to. Put your hand over your heart like a good patriot and recite the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. But no idea what that freedom really means. And no desire... For the individual responsibility, self-governance, and self-regulation required to exercise something called freedom. It's like a religion. Statism is a religion. That's why I think we should all be, whether you, no matter what religion you follow, I think you should be a statheist. Right? <laughs> a sta stagnostic? Is that what you would call it? A statnostic? Right? A stagnostic? Right? Statheist is a word that comes from Stephen Molyneux. Uh, Stefan Molyneux, because he's French from Canada. Anyway, Stefan Molyneux is statheist. That's what I think we should all be. But boy, that takes a certain amount of discipline, right? What if I told you you could have complete freedom and liberty in America? All you got to do is mash a button. And because most people are stupid and would die if we just hit that button, if you push that button right now, it'll take 20 years for, for liberty to evolve to complete freedom, to a true libertarian minarchist state. 20 years, it would happen. People would have enough time to adjust. Those who didn't adjust, tough shit. And that's just the breaks. Would you push it? Most people that listen to this show would say, indeed, I would push it. But if you actually said, before you push that button, I want you to think about what it means for you. 
I want you to think about all the things right now that you take from this system beyond what you contribute to this system and those things going away. Here's the portion you would get back because since we didn't do these things, your piece of the tax pie that there's being taken away from you to do them would be restored onto you slowly over 20 years as the programs are phased out. How do I know I can trust government? Because it's not really government, it's a magic button. But really think about this. Think about it as though it were real, not just a thought experiment. Would you push the button? And you would see people slowly move their hand away from the button. Because that personal responsibility is some scary shit. So yes, Nate, I think that looking at funding things by merit. So if you want money to build a road, then let's get people to pay for it. Well, what about the people who didn't pay? Can they use the road too? If it's a public road, yes. If it's a private road, no. Could we have a merit-based funding for public works? I think we could. Well, some people wouldn't give anything. Well, lots of people don't give anything right now. We already live in a society where half the people don't pay hardly anything in income tax. So what's the difference? Do you think if everybody had all their money, let's say we said there'll be no more tax, period. Just isn't any more tax. And when the government wanted to do something, they'd say, if you'd like to contribute to get this one thing done, send your status coin here, right? And you could just log in and see all the shit your government wants to do, make a decision for yourself, and fund the things that you want. And then, when you really wanted a road that didn't have enough funding, you, as as an as individual citizen, would have to make a case to your fellow citizens of the people that would most benefit from the installation of that road, we should fund this. And every individual would privately decide whether or not they wish to fund it. And no one could go up with a gun, put it to their head, and make them fund it. Do I think that could work? Yeah. Do I think it's going to happen? No. Why? Because... The average person today is getting more than they're putting in. That's how the system remains functional. The average person today gets more back than they put in, in totality. And there's there's two reasons for it. One is because a lot of people don't pay much. The other is because there is an advantage to doing things on a scale that can only be done right now with a government works pro- program. There, there's a lot of waste. There's no doubt about that. There's a lot of corruption. People getting to bid at last and just kind of a wink and nod of the eyes be under $30 million. And then the bid comes in at $29,997,000 and change, right? Um, that shit happens all the time. There's all types of things like that that go on, but the overall efficiency is actually higher than if one company tried to just do it with money, right? It, it actually does, it does benefit greater because it's collectively done. But that doesn't have to be done at the point of a gun and, and, and the, the threat of force and violence. This is actually, Nate is right, this is a great way to do this. Would it work for everything? I don't know. What if we just said, government, this is what we're going to do. You get you get half cut 
You just don't, half the money you were getting, you don't get anymore. Everybody pays half of what they're paying now. Every tax, every tax rate, everything is cut in half. You get half the money you used to. Right? You have to earn the other half. You have to earn the other half. You have to make a case to us, and what we don't fund, you don't get to do. There wouldn't be a data center in Salt Lake City now, would there? Well, we need this all these billions to build this thing here to fight the war on terror. Really? How's it work? Well, um, we don't want to tell you. Well, we want to get. We don't want to give you any money. Oh, okay. Well, here's what it does. It monitors the Internet and records everything that happens and stores it. And then that way, if we think something's going on, we can pull up people's records and look up and see what they've been doing and figure out where the threat is. Peoples? Who are these peoples? Uh, is it everybody? Well, yeah. Okay, no, you don't get any money for that. Next. Yeah, we want to, um, we want to, to, uh, to put these tunnels in for turtles in Florida, and it's going to cost $9 million. That was actually a real thing in the stimulus package, by the way. Okay, $9 million at this scale, it's not that much money. Let's make a case to us. How does this work? And Well, we put these tunnels in for the turtles so that they don't get hit on the road. Okay, um, what percentage of turtles will actually use the, the tunnels? Well, we really don't. Next. I mean, there's so much waste in our government. There's so much bullshit that would just not get funded. But the reason it won't work is because the average person doesn't care. The average person wants this from their government right now. Leave me and the things that I want alone, and don't disturb me in my little biome, and I don't give a shit what you do to anybody else. I just don't care. That is what the average, and the average person in their little sphere doesn't want much. The average person doesn't care about the fact that people aren't allowed to keep chickens because they don't want a chicken. They don't care about a restriction that prevents somebody from growing their own food because they're happy to eat freaking Cheetos. They don't care that TV is mind-numbingly stupid because they like it that way. They don't care about any of this shit. That's why they get away with it. What they don't want is to have to be individually responsible. We've, we've, we've lied to America about what responsibility means. Responsibility means today, I will go to school and study hard and get good grades. Upon graduation of school, I will go to another school where I will study hard and get good grades. I will go up to my ass in debt to do so, and then I will find a good job. And I will hold a quote-unquote good job for as long as possible, and I will always be working for somebody else. And I will be responsible, and I will be on time, and I will do my job well enough to not get fired. And I will continue to buy shit I can't afford, but I will pay all my bills. And I will make sure that my kids grow up and do the same thing. That is responsible. That is the most irresponsible way to live your life I've ever heard of in my life. It's actually more irresponsible than a guy that just decides the hell with it and goes and lives in the mountains. It's actually more irresponsible than the way most homeless people live. Why? <laughs> You're squandering. That's why. What are you squandering when you do that? What potential that you could have realized if you would have said, I will do what I think is right for myself and for those around me, and I will do so without harming anyone else, but I will make my own damn decisions and be responsible for both my successes and my failures. How much more great of a people could we be 
if that was the model of responsibility versus a paint-by-numbers, fill-in-the-blank, connect-the-dots model that we've created of responsibility. He's responsible. He's got a good job. Works hard. So somebody else makes all his decisions for him. Right? You know, let's go back up here a second on this one. Remember when I was talking about the government and I said, what if we just cut their budget in half, cut all taxes in half? I said, half the money's gone. You don't get it. Unless you earn it back. You make a case to us and we'll pay you some of it. You know what that sounds like to me? Pretty much the way many of us treat our children with allowances. Right? So I'll give you an allowance and that's your money for spending. And if you want more for something, you're going to have to work hard for it and figure out how to do it yourself. Or if you want me to pay for it, you're going to have to make a case to me as to why it's a good thing for me to invest in. So if we did that, we would, we would get closer to the process of treating our government like children. Well, right now, folks, it's the other way around. We are treated like children by our government because we behave like children. When people vote today, what's in it for me is the biggest thing that drives their decisions. Well, what are they going to do? Right? Again, think about this. We live in a society with so many laws that we now must pass laws in order to be able to do something. I mean, I was like a kid, right? And somebody would do something really just kind of horrible, kind of immoral, wrong, but not illegal. And some adult somewhere, it's like, there ought to be a law about that. Right? <laughs> so now, there ought to be a law is like, oh, I want to grow fruit in my front yard, but there's a law that says I can't do it. I have to have grass no higher than two inches uh, in, in my city. There ought to be a law that says you can grow fruit in your front yard. How about there shouldn't be a law? See, this is these two issues are very, very linked to one another. If you think about this, how can a society afford as much regulation and law as we have today? How can we afford a nation that has over 20,000 laws about guns and firearms? 20,000 laws plus. And still say, well, we need more. How can we afford that? How can we afford a nation that passes laws to prevent growing food. How can we afford that? How can we afford a nation that can spend millions of dollars on one missile to bomb a person at a wedding? How can we afford that? Spending and borrowing and taxing. How does spending factor in? You spend it, then the people pay taxes back on it. It's all an incestuous financial relationship. We spend money into existence. We loan money into existence. I won't go into the economics behind that. but We can afford it because people allow the extraction of it. And they allow the real-time and future extraction of their wealth. And this is what I mean by that. You feel directly the real-time extraction of your wealth when you file your taxes, when you buy something with a sales tax on it, when you get your property tax bill when you get your utility bill and you see all the taxes on your utilities or your cable bill and see all the taxes on that or your internet bill and see the taxes on that. So you feel that's called the real time of extraction of your wealth. What you don't feel immediately is the future extraction of your wealth through borrowing and bonds and other things. 
And we have this tendency, we look at that national debt and go, holy crap, $17 trillion, and look at it still going up, right? We had one person wrote in and said she showed it to her husband, and he was watching it, and finally he goes, I think this thing's broken. And she said, why? He goes, well, when's it going to stop? <laughs> he couldn't even understand that it doesn't stop. It always keeps running. It always keeps getting bigger. Of course it does. That's how it works. This is how we, that is the future extraction of your wealth, right? But that is only the national extraction. Every time you hear like a city go, we're going to do a bond initiative to build this new theater or park or whatever, that's also the future extraction of your wealth. They're spending money today that they don't have, and the only way governments get money is tax. They don't do anything that people voluntarily pay for. So every single penny that goes into the hand of government has to be taken by force from a citizen who doesn't want to give it to them. That's where we're at today. And, and this is, again, this is the hard part for people to understand who are of libertarian mind. That's what the average American has chosen. The, the fight is not over the extraction, both real-time and future, of our wealth. The fight is not over the fact that we now live in a society where we must pass a law so that we can be freed to do something. No, the fight is over what to do with the extracted wealth. Which side to spend more time regulating? Because it sure as hell isn't about smaller government. Because who the hell ever gave us one of those? Republican or Democrat. It sure as hell isn't about social justice. Because for all the money that the, 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 the liberal takes in government, they don't do a hell of a lot for that. They do a whole lot to create more social injustice. They, let, let me explain something to you about the two sides of the, the economy, just in one issue on each side. And you can go through every issue and work this out for yourself. The liberal establishment does not want to balance social justice at all. They have no interest in it. Okay? Because their entire marketing campaign is based on the fact that inequality exists and needs to be rectified and made right. So if they fix it, it would be like a drug company that's selling you a maintenance medication that you're on for 50 years, coming out with a pill that you can buy for $5, take one time and be cured. So they have no interest in actually equalizing the playing field. They want to, they want to tilt the table toward the people that they see as their core voters. That's their agenda. That's their goal. It's what they do. I recently had somebody say to me on Facebook, why can't you people just admit that white privilege is a real thing? And he was a black guy. And I said, well, maybe if more of you guys on that side of things took advantage of actual black privilege, there'd be less concern about social justice. You know, the black privilege is like minority hiring quotas. The fact if you start a business, you get consideration on many public works bids. Uh, admission requirements at colleges. Uh, if you go into the public sector, there's minority hiring quotas. I mean, there's all kinds of things that have been done to tilt things in your direction if you take one of them and run with it. So that would be minority privilege. Maybe black privilege isn't the way to put it that way. By the way, women, you are a minority too under that system. In many, in many parts of those systems, women are also... It's only white males that get the table completely tilted away from us in all of those areas. And, and so that's not creating social justice. So the, the liberal that says they want social justice, and I don't mean the person that bought into the idea. 
the, the ground soldier, the activist, the person that just really cares about people and is doing good work in their community. I don't mean them. I mean the people in charge, the politicians, the elected officials, and the bureaucrats on that side of the equation have no interest in creating it because it would take away their power. Okay, The conservative Republicans that say they want smaller government have no interest in smaller government. They've built the largest monstrosities of government bigger than any liberals ever built. It's their, it's their, it's their play. If they actually created smaller government, we'd go, hey, we don't need you. And you'd go through every issue. And you can see why the side championing the issue has no interest in actually getting that issue accomplished. It's nothing but a talking point. Over and over again. At the macro level, when you get up to the top level issues, it's like expecting a drug company that specializes in cancer treatment to find a cure for cancer that's cheap, effective, easily replicatable, and to actually make it and produce it and cost themselves a trillion dollars a year by doing so and expecting that they would. That's what it's like to expect that a conservative government would give you smaller government or that a liberal government would give you social justice, whatever the hell that's supposed to mean. It's not going to happen. And it's because your people don't want individual liberty. They do not want personal responsibility. Many of you have shared this show with people and have had great success in doing that. But you, many of you have also shared it with people you thought would really res And you've picked an episode and said, hey, start at 14 minutes. And you've got them to listen to it. And they come back and go, I don't know what you think so great about that. And you wonder why. Is it that Jack's not really that good? I don't know. I, I think I'm okay. It's they're not ready for that. It's You've put a calculus book in front of somebody who's still struggling with basic arithmetic and has no interest in math at all anyway. The, the message that you are responsible for your own life sounds great. But when you actually deliver it with meaning and you really mean it, it scares the piss out of people. It horrifies them. That means that all the stuff in my life that's screwed up, I bear at least some responsibility, if not the majority of responsibility for all of it. I have made my own mess, and I am supposed to clean it up? That sounds like what you tell your kid... I don't like when it's pointed at me. I'll need to get the hell out of here and go back to watching C-SPAN. <sighs> yeah, the idea Nate brought that started this whole soliloquy, great idea. But so is a constitutional republic. But until we rise up as 300 plus million sentinels, each watching over each other, but first being responsible for ourselves, pfft, doesn't matter what the system is. Because the system is only as good as the guardians of the system. And you live in a system where each person is to be a guardian of a system. And none of us are in the totality of things. There's so few of us willing to that our effect is menial. So we've said, fine, take your system, shove it up your ass. Quote Chris Rock, all up in your ass. We don't care. We'll participate where you make us and where it benefits us. And that's it. And we will build our own systems. We will build our own intentional communities. We will build our own groups. We will build our own education systems. 
we'll stop doing what you say we have to because you can't make us. We're going to do whatever the hell we want as long as we don't hurt anybody. And we're going to be smart about it so we don't end up in one of your freaking state correctional institutions or federal correctional institutions. We're going to do it within the bounds of the law, lateral to the existing system, because you people have lost your minds and we're not going to participate in your collective idiocy and collective insanity any more than we absolutely have to. We won't vote for the lesser of two evils because I don't want either one of you. Well, what if everybody did that? That would be pretty cool. If everybody did that, then maybe we'd actually elect somebody that actually was a servant instead of a thief. But until everybody's ready to do it, go just do what you want. Go do what you want. Again, libertarians, that's the sad truth. The majority of people don't want what you have to offer. Because it's too hard. It's too hard to be responsible when the whole world is telling you it's somebody else's fault and you don't have to be. Keep spreading the message anyway. The truth, indeed, in time will set us all free. Let's take another one. Okay, the next one is pretty simple. Um, it's one of those things that's kind of spooky to people, but it's really, really easy. It says, hey, Jack, how does a complete beginner make their own hard apple cider? What equipment is needed? What process do you recommend? I have a property with mature apple trees. I'm not sure of the variety, but they're good-eating apples. Thanks, uh, thanks, Jack. Uh, and this is actually for Mark Shepard. I just noticed that it says question for Mark in there. Um, I'm going to answer it anyway, and we'll talk to Mark about people doing this on their own when he's on the show, which he will be soon. If you have a question for Mark Shepard, please send it to me with question for Mark in the subject line. And uh, when we have Mark's interview, I'll try to work your questions in. I think there's only a few. So those of you that are fans of Mr. Shepard's work, there's four right now. So I can probably get your questions in if you get them to me. I think it's another week or two before we have Mark on. Um, there's two sides to that question. One is how do I get juice out of the apples? And what equipment do I need for that? I'm going to table that for right now. And I'm going to talk about what to do once you have apple juice because it's really simple and it will apply to more people here because a lot of us have access to juice but not necessarily enough apples on our own property to make our own cider. So apple cider is pretty much you take apple juice, you add sugar at a ratio of about one to two pounds of some sort of additional sugar per five gallons. So up to you. This controls how much alcohol is produced. There's only so much sugar in the apple juice. By adding additional sugar in the form of something like cane sugar, we get a cheap way to boost the alcohol and push to a higher level. Uh, we can use things that are rich, that have residual flavors as a sugar product, like a brown sugar or a molasses if we want to leave more of a buttery, caramely flavor in the cider. Uh, there's a billion recipes on how to do this. We can use a pound or two of honey and basically make what's called a sizer then. But once we have that done and it's incorporated, we put it into a fermentation vessel, usually just a big uh, bucket, a six-and-a-half-gallon bucket for five gallons of, of material. Uh, we make sure we clean that bucket and we sanitize. Don't sterilize, but sanitize. I use a product called Star Sand for that uh, to make a cleaning fluid, which is a no-rinse cleaner, which means you can just... Rinse it, and you're done. Shake it out, and you can go ahead and brew in it. We put the apple juice with sugar into the bucket. We pitch a yeast, put an airlock on it. When it stops bubbling for long enough, it's done. And there's a little bit more complication. You can listen to my show on brewing. It's all the same. You can take hydrometer readings to be sure that it's done. But basically, when it goes to where it's not bubbling at all anymore for a couple days, 
it's done. And then from that point, you either rack it off to another container. We call them carboys in the, in the, uh, the brewing world. This will be a glass bottle that looks like a water bottle for a water bottle machine, you know, like a water cooler, but you need a glass one, not plastic. Rack it into there, let it settle, and the more times we rack it and keep it under an airlock and store it in a cool temperature, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 7 degrees would be good for apple cider. The more it will settle out, the more it will become clear, the more sediment will drop, and the more of an aged product will produce. When we get it to where we're ready to, we either bottle it or we can keg it. Those are your two big options there, bottled or kegged. You also need to decide at that point, do you want a still cider or do you want a, a, a fizzy cider? Do you want bubbles or not? Do you want it carbonated or not? If you want it carbonated, just like beer, you add a little bit of sugar, about one cup of sugar to a five-gallon batch at bottling time, and uh, you, you take that sugar and you put it in a little bit of water and you, you dissolve it in hot water, you dump it in, and then you bottle And you cap your bottles, and or if you're doing it wine style, you cork them and wire them down. And that secondary little fermentation in there will produce CO2, a little tiny bit more alcohol. The pressure will carbonate it. If you use a kegging system like I do, you pressurize it, and you hold the pressure on there for depending on how quickly you want it to happen. If you want to do it quick, you can jack the pressure way up and rock your keg back and forth and do the one-day carbonation method, or you can put about 10 pounds of CO2 on it. And just leave it sitting there for a week to a week and a half. It'll carbonate up nicely on its own. That's the whole thing. I have to do a whole show to tell you more than that. Um, there is one other thing involved, though. In apple juice, unless you're buying pasteurized apple juice from the store, and I do make cider that way. I absolutely do. Um, raw apple juice, unpasteurized apple juice, will have natural yeasts in it. There's nothing in there that can make you sick if you actually ferment it to the alcoholic level. It won't do anything to hurt you because as the alcohol comes up, anything capable of harming you dies as the, the alcohol level comes up. But you could have yeasts in there that are really cool and create little nuances that make your cider really yummy. Or you could have yeast in there that suck and make your cider taste bleh. Now, since you're pitching a cultivated yeast in large quantity... It should do the majority of the fermentation, and this step that I'm about to give you is not necessary. Not necessary. But if you want to truly control your cider batch to batch, and you want all the characteristics and flavors to come from the yeast you've chosen, and what I like to use is a champagne yeast. I like to use a high-attenuating, high-alcohol-tolerant, dry champagne yeast for my ciders. Because I don't like a sweet cider. I like a dry cider. And the way you control the sweetness is how much work does the yeast do before it goes, I'm done. I quit. I have finished. I have done my job. I am now going to go dormant and fall to the bottom of the, of the fermenter. I, I cannot tolerate this. I have created too much alcohol for myself. And yeasts have tolerance to how much alcohol they can handle. So a high alcohol tolerant yeast will do, ferment more of the sugars and leave only the non-fermentable residual sugars re remaining for the residual sweetness that you're looking for in a good balanced cider. If you want it all under your control, then you pasteurize your cider. <gasps> Pasteurization is evil. No, it's not. It's just heating it up. Okay, And you do not boil any fruit at all, ever, when you brew, or you ruin it, you create haze, you set the pectin, it's a mess. The number 
is 160 degrees Fahrenheit, and the number shall be 160, and 160 shall the number be. Not the 161, not 159. No, it's not going to be that exact. It's actually 155 degrees for six seconds. We'll pretty much kill 99.999, five nines of anything alive in that cider, six seconds at 155 degrees. Um, Cornell University's guidance on this is 160 for a five-degree fudge factor. And when they do this in commercial uh, pasteurization, the juice passes through in like this long tube. So it's a uniform 160 degrees. All of it's heated. Now, if you put apple juice into a pot and bring the temperature up to 160 when your little milk thermometer or candy thermometer you stick in there says it's 160, is it 160 everywhere? A vigorous stir and the temperature will often go down. But when you get 160... You can just turn off the heat, put your lid on the pot, and let it sit. And I, I do mine all five gallons into one big nine-gallon brew kettle I have uh, with a valve at the bottom that opens and let it sit. Because pasteurization will occur at 150 degrees. If it's held there long enough, well, it's going to stay hot for a long time, right? And again, there's nothing in there that can kill us. We're going to ferment this stuff. So when I do this, and I don't always do this, but I've had more consistent, I have to admit, I've had more consistent results with cider when I've pasteurized it. I bring it up in temperature, and once I've got it at that temperature, that's when I add my additional sugar, because it all dissolves. Makes it easy. So I dump in a couple pounds of brown sugar or a couple pounds of honey, stir it up real good, let it sit, let it cool some, and then I put it into my fermenter, and I let it come down in temperature, And when it gets down to about 100 degrees, I pitch my yeast, put my airlock on, and that's it. Now, so what equipment do you need? Cider is actually really easy. Um, since you don't have to pasteurize it, you need a bucket. It's really good to get one of those buckets with little spigots on the bottom. It makes your life a lot easier. You need, an with a top that an airlock fits into, you need an airlock You need, if you are going to stir and you are not going to pasteurize, you need a stainless steel spoon because you need to clean it very good. You need some sanitizer. You can use chlorine bleach. I don't think it's worth doing. I would buy the Star Sanit. It's my favorite sanitizer. Okay, it's basically an acid. You could drink it. It wouldn't hurt you. It's kind of like using lemon juice. It's such an acidic environment that it kills bacteria and wild yeast and things like that. And again, it's no rinse. So you need a sanitizer, you need a bucket, you need an airlock, you need a tube, a tube through which the cider may flow, and you need, if you're going to bottle it, you need a, a bottling wand. It's a little plastic wand deal, and you put a tube on it, and you put a tube on your little bucket dro dropper, and then when you push down on it, the cider, beer, wine, whatever flows, It will fill the bottle to the top, and when it gets right to the top, you stop. And when you pull it out, as if by magic, the exact amount of space that you really need in there to allow carbonation to form exists. The displacement of the wand is perfect in order to provide that little bit of headspace you need. If you're not going to carbonate it, it doesn't matter, but you're going to do that anyway. And you need, if you're going to do bottling, you need either corks, a corker, and wire tie-downs. Because if you're doing cider and you're going to cork it like wine and, and, and carbonate it, you need to tie that sucker down with a wire tie like they have on a champagne bottle. Or you need, it's much easier to just use caps. Much easier to just use caps. So you use basically beer bottles, and you need a capper, and you need bottle caps. 
And when you cap your cider, your beer, your wine, whatever, boil some water, throw your caps in the boiling water, shut it off, drain your stuff off, let them cool down, and that way they're, they're, they're sterilized. And you're not going to have to worry about them introducing some kind of nasty, no-good, infectious, foul-tasting bugaboo to your, your stuff. That's it. It's the whole thing. Cider is like, is wine, is apple wine. That's all cider is. So if you could do what I just said, you can make wine from grapes. You can make plum wines. You can make wines from blackberries. You can make mead. It's all the same. It's all the same. It's all the same. I will say this. When I make a shrew mead, that honey never sees and never sees 155 degrees. Uh, I get the water just hot enough, probably about 120, to get the honey to dissolve. And it's, if it's at 120 and I kill the heat and start dropping the honey in, that temperature plummets. Two, you know, when you, when you drop about, and I used about 12 to 15 pounds of honey to a pure mead on a five gallon batch. By the time that honey's in there, it's, it's down to like 100 degrees. Um, and that's, that's the way I've always done my meads. Now, what do you need to make cider from an apple? not an apple juice in a bottle. Well, uh, you really need two pieces of equipment. You don't have to go this route. There's other ways to get apples into juice form. But my opinion is invest some money and buy a good, um, cr a good crusher, either a fruit and apple crusher. Um, Weston makes a pretty good one, 05-0201 fruit and apple crusher is a pretty good tool about 170 bucks. It's about the bottom, the bottom end of what I would go to. Um, Weston also makes an 05-0101 18-quart fruit and wine press that then you take your mashed-up apples and put them in and run this press, and uh, that sells for about $229. Those two products I do know work. They are not top of the line. They are not the best of the best. I would not try to go in even to small-scale uh, production, especially with the crusher. I'd want a better crusher. The press is damn good. Uh, it's too, Again, $229 is the retail on it. And again, it's the Weston 05-0101 is, uh, is the press. And uh, the, uh, the crusher is the uh, 05-0201. And it's good. It's, 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 it's not great. If you wanted to do a lot, you probably want to step up a little bit with it. I've had, I've heard mixed reviews on, uh, how great that thing is. This is something I'll be investing in in the future, but since all my apple trees are little tiny apple trees and I'll probably get a few apples next year, there's no reason to spend the money just yet. Uh, and I might look for a better set of products, but for the home producer that wants to make, you know, 20, 30 gallons of apple cider a year, it's, it's probably adequate. I wouldn't go cheaper. The press, uh, people look at presses and wonder why they're hundreds of dollars. There's a lot of pressure exerted, more than you would think, to get the juice out of an apple. And um, there's a lot of work and a lot of heavy, uh, heavy metal and engineering necessary to make a press that's going to last. You know, it's not going to basically press itself apart. Um, really good presses are thousands of dollars. I don't think even somebody that was doing it at a very small commercial scale needs to spend too much money on them. 
But again, those are the two products about the bottom end of what I would go. And we'll see what Mark Shepard has to say about this when we have money. I remember, if you have a question for Mark Shepard, author of Restoration Agriculture, he'll be on the show soon, please send it to me, Jack at the com. But in your subject line, put question for Mark. And with that, I think we'll uh, wrap up for today. Good questions, guys. Remember, if you want to be on a show like this with your question, comment, or video, or what have you, just send the email to jack at the com. Question for Jack, story for Jack, video for Jack, what have you in the subject line. Hope you guys have a great week, and uh, hope you guys uh, continue to build more liberty in your lives. Remember, TikTok, TikTok. The clock is always running. Time is always moving on. You are either moving toward greater individual and personal liberty or the system is working against you. It's a sliding scale in life. There is no static. Move forward or the system moves you backward. It's your choice. Please make the right one for you and yours. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.